0: Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley, and today is a special edition where we're going to have an in-depth conversation with our guest, Violet Sullivan. Nice having you.
1: Nice to be on here.
0: So uh, one of the things looking, because you know I did some of the social stalking beforehand, um, and what I like to really see is kind of you combining different subset of skills. I, I look at people like that as like a pioneer in, in the field in general. Um, so for our guests and for myself too, in case I didn't find something, I don't if you don't mind kind of running through kind of how you ended up where you're at now, uh, and what are some of the key milestones um, that kind of I think landed you this way?
1: Well, I think everyone's cyber story is interesting because it always comes about. There's some non-traditional pathway that they took that got them interested in computer security and not just IT or not just, um, for me, I was pretty much always running from being a real lawyer, um, traditional lawyer. I always try to correct myself (laughs) because I went to law school. I went to did the MBA program. I did all the school at once. And i realized oh my goodness the mba program teaches like teamwork and collaboration and capitalism and law school is just cutthroat and you know lawyers right. so i went through the legal route and it wasn't until i was leaving i was very oddly criminal defense for a couple of years okay. oil and gas transactional and then i thought i had to get back to texas how am i going to get back to texas of course, my oil and gas will skill set will bring me down. Well, the price of oil uh, price of gas was so low. So I had to settle for this firm that did something called data breach, Um, data breach response. And that's kind of my story in the cyber was it was something I didn't even know. I lucked into it. But I took a chance in a non traditional role where it wasn't a firm. It was a lawyer that was interacting with the operational side. So it wasn't like I used even 10% legal skills. It was operational and and sales and marketing and kind of figuring out project management on how do we respond to the operational. When I say that, I mean the breach notification letters. Like someone has to figure out the mail centers, the postage issues, the address problems, the, you know, like all of those pieces, which I didn't know that exact job existed, um, as well as the call centers to answer all the questions. So we lucked out and within three weeks, I worked on Home Depot. Uh, so we worked on 56 million people as soon as i got onboarded um and then we worked on sony which was the coolest thing to be like oh my gosh in our call center there were celebrities calling in asking about their identity because no one knew back then in target days that identity wasn't as they didn't have the fatigue that they have now of not caring or not calling for it so they were like you know interesting sony employees yeah. Yeah. that were calling like a normal call center asking for credit monitoring it was hilarious but that was a very big pivot in cyber because then the next spring same like same 12 months of my first start in cyber we worked on anthem which was 78 million and the only reason i threw out those names are because it created like this initial family of people, 800 other people worked on the same stuff that I did, but it created this like, oh, you are an OG, you started and you know this, you know the weird stuff, you know what mega breaches are. Mm -hmm. And it also opened my eyes to all of the, I think I lucked out in starting on that side because I saw all of the places that were missing in the cyber business models Right. We had technical, mm-hmm. but at the time we didn't even have data mining. I remember working with data analysts to figure out like, okay, they said this many gigabytes left the network, but how do we know what those gigabytes held? Right. And there wasn't that um, e-discovery crossover to pair it with data mining. So then from there, I've been on the insurance side. I've been on the, the last two years forensic side, and I just started um, on the cyber insurance side. I've always kind of served that group. Right. Um, but now I'm internal because there are a lot of cyber insurance companies investing in people with different backgrounds and experiences so that we can serve the policy holders, everyone with cyber insurance in the best way possible and not putting like non-technical people right. on the risk management.
0: It's very cool. Yeah, it's like the trial by fire. I feel like everybody gets gets that at some point in the cyber realm somewhere, right? Right. Um, so I kind of... Some of the questions I wanna break out and talk to you about, Uh, one of the main topics, I try to group them so I'm not all over the place, but it's gonna be cyber insurance in general because I figured you'd be a great person for that, right? Um, And one of the things is, I've talked with cyber insurance folks and worked with different um, groups within other big companies as far as the process. And one of the things that was an eye opening to me was what cyber insurance really offers than just what you would think traditional insurance offers where you can just like they help pay for part of the cost. Right. And so can you kind of elaborate what is under that umbrella a little bit so people kind of can be aware?
1: Completely. And I think what's so interesting is we I actually just we just talked with a group of um, other cyber insurance friends, colleagues, cronies on an RSA panel. And there was so much resistance from the technical community on a lot of the cyber insurance issues that they picked out were the hot button issues, the war exclusion, the, you know, a lot of the things that we question covers of um, questions of coverage. Um, All of that is, I think, like what you said, the first thing you think of. But what I what people don't realize is even before I was on this side, I would tell people, and I, I teach a class um, in privacy law and cybersecurity law at Baylor Law School, and I would say the easiest thing to do in your security position to look like you are saving money is to go see what bells and whistles attach to your policy. And a lot of people were like, what are you talking about? That's risk manager's role or a CFO or comptroller. And um, I think... I think people are very surprised to know that all these things come with cyber insurance. And what I think has evolved is more of the competition in the insurance market of what it is going to provide. And a cyber broker, I know, put it really well by saying the regulatory environment didn't really step up when it comes to making requirements um, for When we saw the breach notification statutes coming out and we saw all these mega breaches coming, um, she always says insurance took the black eye for putting some standards and rules around more than just an industry like framework, like HIPAA or um, PCI. And that really hit home for me because I'm like, they, they were, even though... They were ahead of the curve in certain things. They also made mistakes first as an industry. Because they're doing it, yeah. And but yeah. but they were the ones actually saying, "Hey, if you want money to cover, you've got to have um, not just Joe Schmo IT doing forensics with no tool set and not knowing how to treat a black box. So you need to have the best experts at the lowest prices and at scale." What I think, um, and in in London. Um, the insurance people call it the vendor proposition, right? It's the it's the idea that we have the relationships and we deal with cyber incidents. Mm-hmm. If you're if you have any um, cyber insurance book of business, you deal with cyber incidents all the time in the claims process. So you have actual numbers, and this is what I think security people would totally love is the actuarial data oh, yeah. is probably greater on the insurance side than anywhere else because regulators aren't getting this kind of detail and data because it is covered in privilege which means the lawyer's on the call Um, and there's just so much more data on the insurance side so they're not only able to see where the more money is spent but also see where money is abused like vendors that might abuse certain Uh, amounts or maybe they have the lowest rate but they charge double the hours so you start seeing these trends and so I feel like on the insurance side I feel like I'm part of the like the front, the insiders, like, and we also seeing, because the claims usually people want money to pay for it. So we, insurance is usually the first call because untimely notice of a claim might have an impact on whether it's covered. So if they call and say, hey, we have an incident, we're hearing the first of it. Like sometimes even before the technical teams, which is awesome and that we get everything in, in order. But I think the other piece is, we have the direct lines to all the help immediately. So, if we have a company that you know they were on the roadmap to get all that stuff together and they didn't have it yet, and they were switching providers and they don't have the phone number or direct of a forensics provider or breach counsel or even crisis communications or data mining, all of those pieces are already pre-negotiated rates. Right. Like, they just it's just easier. And that's just on the claim side. There's a lot more bells and whistles on the preventative side. And there's a lot of really cool resources that I think, I mean, I've seen free virtual CISO, I've seen free tabletops, really a lot of things thrown into an insurance policy that says every year you get this. There is a distrust saying, well, I don't want to give my insurance carrier that information. Um, Like one of the things I always get asked is, do do you guys do internal scanning? And usually it's like, usually it's external scanning, unless there's a specific requirement or you want to offer that information up, it's usually when we say vulnerability scanning, we're usually talking about like outside. What's exposed. Yeah, Yeah. what's exposed. And so it's stuff that's publicly available anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just being used as another filter to say whether or not you have a risk because we don't get to look at line by line risk audits.
0: And I even know going through the process of getting insurance, I mean, you're kind of going through a lot of that rigmarole already. Because that's how you're going to justify what the rates are going to be and all that kind of stuff. So,
1: yeah, and it's a big exercise. I've heard lately too that it's really helped CISOs to push things faster on the roadmap and leaders to push things faster on the roadmaps. Because again, insurance taking the the black eye, but also taking the, you know, you're going to have to do this or else you won't get coverage. And there's been more consensus, especially over the last couple of years, of well, we need to have. They need to have some kind of EDR, or they need to have multi-factor on um, domain accounts at least. And most of the people are saying across, you know, right. the network. But all of that is evolved. It's like, can we ask for a little bit more? Mm-hmm. But what we're asking for is not above reasonable standards. Right. Like they're reasonable standards. Yeah. So it's not like we're asking for this specific vendor on EDR. Like a lot of people think that is the case. It's right. not. It's that we want to make sure that you have looked at the holistic cyber security posture and um, just addressed all of the key issues that we see as being repetitive reasons for a claim.
0: So one of the things I know that a lot of uh, companies use insurance for is the offload of the risk, right? And it's kind of a risk management exercise, and in some cases a lot of the technical folks feel like, well, that's just a way to avoid the risk in a sense, right? And I was wondering, can you speak to how insurance companies kind of hold some accountability there? I know like obviously people can't be negligent as far as how they're managing their environment where insurance companies, well, we're not going to fulfill that claim because we can prove that you weren't doing the right things to begin with and th- things like that. But does that kind of make sense as far as how that you know, offloading the risk is, but it's, it's, you still hold people accountable so they can maintain...
1: Probably I think it's it. interesting because I don't think I've heard that. I know, like, I'm, I've am i been studying for the CISSP, and I know that, you know, the whole transfer the risk and yeah. mitigate the risk and um, avoid, you know, or accept the risk right. being one of them. I think it's interesting because it really does align with what they teach you in law school, right? Because a contract is a risk transfer mechanism. Mm-hmm. You, and I would just say, you treat vendors like, hey, we have a contract. So that we know you have our secret sauce, and we know you have IP, you know APIs connected or right. some kind of connection into us. Um, so we're going to put these rules around it. Well, an uh, insurance policy is just a contract, so it it's the same kind of risk transfer that a contract is with a vendor that says you know we're just using it for this, right. so don't touch our other stuff. Um, this, I think it's interesting you say that because. Well, where would they be without it? If you don't avoid the risk, you leave yourself open to the 1% chance. I think
0: it's like the more, do they mitigate it properly and put more funds into it or accept it? But you kind of give them that extra, the way they can transfer it, like you, know, like you would have been. Yeah. I and mean, that was a good, yeah. I think, analogy to say that's how you can, mm-hmm. it's similar to giving the vendor part of the risk versus you know, insurance. Right,
1: right. So. But I don't think any part of it is avoidance because unless you do, I mean, you, you could have, and that would be on the, part of the organization if they choose to avoid it. But what I think it's actually the opposite okay. that the insurance company actually holds you accountable so that if you say you have these controls together and if you don't have those controls, you may have coverage issues if you were like right. You'd be lying misrepresenting. Yeah. Right. If you were misrepresenting. And so it's saying, OK, you need to have this in place and you can't avoid it because we're requiring it for any promise of covering when there's a problem. And I think the other thing, the accountability piece, what's interesting is um, our team, uh, cyber solutions team at, at an insurance company, we have virtual CISO calls, free virtual CISO calls, ability to ask questions, to engage, but also all the other resources that I think the distress of the insurance side has made people in the past not wanna do the services, but there's a lot that can supplement the uh, risk management process for the security leaders. So I don't think any avoidance of it is an issue. I think it's almost like a need to have because, and I'm not just because I'm in the space, (laughs) but because I feel like it's a need to have because zero days exist. Right, the and because there's those things and and you're only as secure as your dumbest employee sometimes like you have to figure out the human error risk right, and right. um, and the totally obscure random risk and say, would a total shutdown of digital assets put us out of business if we were down for a longer extended period of time? You don't have a failover or you don't have, you know, whatever you have. It's it's sometimes. Well, it's mo- a lot of times totally impossible to dil- to transfer all of the risk or mitigate all of the risk, right? right? That's the reason they teach you in CISSP that there's those three things. Right. You can't do all of one. It's like a triad. You can't just right. yeah. You can't just transfer all the risk. You can't just accept all the risk. That would be. I mean, some people self-insure, <laughs> so I know that's some of it. But um, and you can't just have one piece of that triangle.
0: So. Um... One of the things that I was listening to some of your other podcasts you're on and some of the comments you made, something that was really interesting to me. And you were talking about cyber law in general, and you were talking about how it's really hard because there's not a lot of litigation that happens in cyber law because, so there's not a lot of precedent, right? Um, and I was kind of curious from an insurance standpoint, if cyber insurance becomes more common, I'm, this is my take is there's a lot more settlements when insurance is involved. So, would there be less litigation if cyber insurance is more popular or more commonly used potentially?
1: So, does that make sense? yes, it does, okay. but I'm going to reword it because sure you a better job. if so, there's a lot of things about your statement that are true, but not all of them are true together. Okay. So, one of which is the more prevalent of cyber insurance policies and uptick on buying the policies. I think what you're going to see is more people acknowledging the risk and doing different actions because they have that that risk uh, safety net. Okay. But I don't think that it's correlated at all to settlements because settlements are usually, really what, what's happening in the courts right now is totally separate and apart from insurance. Okay. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting. And I nerd out on this stuff because- <laughs> it really is cool that we're at such a new and young area of law like property is 500 years old Um, you have and then intellectual property is stemming from the same property principles or contract law you know it's it's all these old school methods and so we're having to come up with like breach notification requirements and cyber law and you have two things really that people get in trouble for contractual disputes right vendor to vendor Mm -hmm. supply chain uh you owe me this you told me this and then second is regulatory so the you broke the rules uh and that's going to be state federal international gdpr all those acronyms or even industry-wide like hipaa all that kind of stuff Um, that all of that is new right and all of that is fun and interesting to cyber lawyers, because it's all very new. It used to be very much only privacy, but right, so privacy being about the data and security being the rule, uh, how to keep, like privacy is the rules about how to keep the data. Security is the actual mechanism to keep them safe. And we used to just fight in the courts about the confidential information. Well, now we're fighting on operational shutdowns and questions about like um, the big Coverage issue that came up was really around Mondelez um, getting hit with nonpetty in 2017, and we just got an opinion a year ago, basically saying that um, that oh I don't remember.
0: <laughs> it was the Act of War
1: Peace, right? Yeah, it was yeah. it was um, the one that led to the Act of War Peace, but it was settled. So we don't know the background. We don't know which way it is. and But this goes to the lack of precedent thing. It's like right. if it settles. So if it settles, we don't know which way it would have gone. So the problem is you keep having settlements because no one wants to be the case that like screws it up for the other side. Okay. On both sides. Okay. Whether you're the company or the plaintiffs. So you think being
0: so young plays a lot into that because you don't want to be the first?
1: Yeah. I think that I, – I think that – so – the cyber litigators on the defense side that I know will say the plaintiff's attorneys and us, the defense counsel, are both looking for the same thing. A unicorn case where they have all the security controls in place. They were perfect in terms of their controls, their, their legal, their int- like everything is perfect. And yet still they got breached or had an incident. Um, and that incident resulted in harm because any lawsuit you have to have harm. Right. Um, It resulted in harm. The problem is most of the time there is something messed up. So it's really hard to have that unicorn case that has all those pieces and says, this doesn't make sense. So we are basically living in a world of limbo in terms of cyber law, which makes it interesting. But it doesn't mean increased settlements because of insurance. It just means increased settlements because people are scared to be the one that says, all right, let's go do it, judge and jury. Like, let's go let's try this out, yeah. because there's not really a bunch of um, of those precedents. But I will say they're really trying hard to find that on the pixel litigation side. So privacy, um, cookies, session replay, like yeah. all of that, that uh, ad tracking stuff, that's really interesting to watch right now. Even though it's privacy, it has a lot of cyber security questions and concerns. Yeah, just because of a
0: lot of the... And users are unaware. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a big part of it, right? Right.
1: I mean, it, it sounds like when you read what they're accusing and what they what they track and keep, it sounds super big brother, right? It tracks mouse movements. It's kind of like, you know, we talk about um, keystrokes and, and using that um, peace and security and gathering information. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, it kind of freaks you out a little bit how much they're taking of the information.
0: Yeah, it's a... Uh... I was in the military and when we would do target assessments, we would do patterns of life and it was basically collecting similar information. So the big brother thing definitely translates Mm -hmm. very well to some of that. And the people that are really big conspiracy theorists, I'm sure it freaks them out even more, right? So, um, But one of the things I was also thinking about when thinking about cyber insurance, um, I think it's ever growing. um, And I feel like when it emerged, it's like now everyone kind of has to have it, though it's not required. Mm But I think it was like auto insurance, and I was doing the research on like why auto insurance exists. It's more for the victim, not so much the driver, but it also reduces litigations, so that it doesn't overwhelm the court systems and things like that. Could you see cyber insurance trending that way for organizations where it's almost kind of a requirement that if you're going to be an organization of a certain size, you almost have to have it, even though it's not stated yet.
1: I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for right
0: now, uh, I can yeah, see that, right? But- uh,
1: no, I, I think that, I think that there's a lot of people that when you realize what cyber insurance covers and some they all cover different things right there's some that might cover um specific issues um related to data loss and the typical data breach there's some that might be ransomware and actually have money for a negotiation on the side not that you we want you to pay threat actor but but that you would have all of these buckets of options, options. yeah, yeah. Of all the possible crises, right? Just like you have playbooks, you have insurance. Basically, you have these like pathways of, um. Me- risk transfer mechanisms, right? These paragraphs, and if you had no computers, then you right you would have no not you know not cyber risk. Yeah, you would have no computers. network, but the the issue I think of moving forward. Is it going to be more necessary? Is Are we going to keep adding computers? Are we going to keep adding technology? Are we going to keep doing cloud stuff? Are we going to keep expanding our horizons, our digital transformation of the world? Then we're going to get riskier.
0: Because, yeah, if you think about an automobile, it became a necessity at some
1: point. Yeah. And that's why now... And because there's more cars. Right. Right? So now we're computers. And what's the harm a computer can do? A lot. (laughs) Perfect, perfect podcast answer there. Just <laughs> done. That is our tagline is what c- uh, harm can we do. We'll make sure to your, highlight that.
0: Yes. Right. Absolutely. So one of the other areas, I'm going to jump off insurance because I think we've nailed a lot right. really well. Okay, um, And it's kind of a topic. And you know, This one's more of a brief area, but um, I always, like academia, right? I think it's a really important mm-hmm. space. And I saw the, you do, you're an adjunct professor. Um, and one of the things I've seen in cyber world is academia doesn't keep the same pace it needs to, to push out people qualify with the right skills. Like people say, well, they get fundamentals. I don't even think they have enough fundamentals in the skill sets they come out with or a good understanding. Um, And with the stuff that you teach, I'm assuming it's more the cyber and legal stuff, that purview, do you find academia still falls behind there or is it slower because it's the legal side?
1: I think it still falls behind. Still falls behind. I think one of the things is the mechanisms of teaching make it onerous to keep updating so like for instance i tell people to get plugged in linkedin like the research you did for this or connect with people that they that you want to work with and kind of go through mentorships and internships and all that kind of stuff right i think when i think about just even the updating the reading materials like I have to go through, you know, my own multi-factor authentication with a separate computer and a separate <laughs> password, so I do think it's just onerous to keep updated. And it's different for mine because I don't have a textbook; I just have links to a bunch of different yeah. resources. Um, yeah, so that changes, a lot. That right. changes yeah. a lot, right? And I think the same with textbooks. As textbooks change, um, it's hard to stay up to date in an academic world. I still really like it because. It's hard to find time. Otherwise, if you're not academically focused on learning a new skill set, it's hard. But I honestly probably would go if I were getting more education and which I am trying to is go to um, company Intel information like that you can study up on YouTube. Um, I mean, I use a lot of different forms of social media to connect me to things to learn. But there's also a lot of um, free or really minimal courses Coursera there's a lot of really good stuff especially on AI law stuff that i'm interested in like right. ip law and ai law and all of the other connectors into cyber and privacy um, because i don't it, and but i haven't had the chance to see whether they have good you know right. material time. yet yeah. I, but it is time it is you have to set aside the time and i think you just have to put decide where you want to put your bucket of time in and i don't think many traditional Schools, people are doing as much anymore than collaboration of resources.
0: And I, I, you know, I've reviewed some curriculum and called in when I worked for various uh, entities um, to review whatever they had. And it was always really a good display of all the things they offered. But when we offer suggestions at that point in time, it was like, well, it's like a five-year process to redo this curriculum. And it was like, wow, that's like too long when you think of our space. Like I, I can see... Maybe academia for me, I, I look at it as it should be more modular. But then now you need resources to teach what could change, and that's you know another challenge. So, but it's interesting to see from your perspective um, because I don't know if legal things are fast or slow, and then when you add cyber to that, how that changes. So
1: the threat because the threats are fast, yeah. it makes the it makes you have to respond legally. So for instance, Clop this summer with MoveIt, that one was super interesting to see both sides, cyber and technical, and that's why I like you know, looking at these from two different angles yeah. because interestingly enough, it was more work for the lawyers than the technical because there was the investigation of the progress software. Right. The forensic investigation was done. Whenever they had, whenever the, um, whenever Klopp had a leak or, the, or a prospective uh, leak on their site, there was more work on the legal side to communicate like, Due diligence, and we've got everything covered, and mm-hmm. all of those things. And interestingly enough, we on the forensics—I was on the forensic side then—we just didn't see a lot of like stuff that we needed to do from a forensic standpoint because it was truly the leak of the information we on one. See the leak too. At yeah. So yeah. The validates. Everything. Yeah. So it's just yeah.
0: Like, it's here. What do we do with it? Right. Right. Yeah. There That's wasn't much
1: to do on that side, which I thought was interesting. So fast or slow, I would say it really depends on the threat. And so it's fast in the way that you actually have no knowledge of what what's gonna happen. I think the same happened after Ukraine or Russia um, war started is we we thought on the insurance side, I think most of us were wrong. We all thought there was gonna be this ramp up of cybercrime, Like all of a sudden there was gonna start being like arrows shot at each other digitally. And then it was just quiet and it was really quiet It just kind of went against everything we predicted. So that will always be a good career reminder. Like you might not even know the next step. Right.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. So one of the things I always ask people and you made the comment, like all the different areas you looked at to say, stay up to snuff on whatever's going on. Right. And my favorite interview question is just like, how do you keep in touch? Right. Like, what is it that you do kind of thing? Um, and I always get really interesting answers that way. And honestly, that's how I learned. I'll ask people that question and then they'll be like, pick up. Oh uh, yeah. I I I was like, let me write that down
1: real quick. That's really good. I need you to add a question then because one of my new things that I want to learn is give me one basic like Excel word or outlook trick. That nobody else knows, because I'm fascinated with like these tricks that people will figure out, and you only know by experience. Like oh, it's yeah. not like there's a book out there that says, "Here are all the efficiency tricks for normal productivity." That's another question that I that I always think about. But how do I learn? I would say it's a mix between LinkedIn. Um, I'm very um, I'm very into it as a almost like feels like a testing ground like before Instagram like made all the changes. Yeah. I feel like LinkedIn's in that space where they're about to like crack down or something but now there's like just all these beta tests of LinkedIn Live and LinkedIn yeah. Audio that has Clubhouse. I learn a lot from other people so maybe that's why it's a really good avenue for me but it also has showed me to verify links, right? It shows me and people post anything right, right. but then once someone says something, I start, when I start down the rabbit hole, I'm like, oh, well, they posted bleeping computer, but I like CSO online and you know, there's different, these different perspectives. So what I, when I say LinkedIn, I almost use it as a starting point because it gets me interested in a subject that I learn more about. Right, you yeah, like dig mm-hmm. deeper. And then if LinkedIn's boring me that day or it's slow news day, I really like um, some of the, like kind of customized news feeds like um, Feedly. Mm-hmm. Um but Like before that, everyone was doing their own custom RSS feeds. But instead of building my own, Feedly like has everything there. And so I love using that. I love Mastodon. Um, And any kind of decentralized sharing of information is nice.
0: And my favorite thing is, so every time we put together, like we do a weekly segment for this podcast to talk about what are the top five things we should think about and how do we approach them technically Mm -hmm. from a threat hunting perspective? Things to think about because we work on behaviors. And, um, it's always one thing I'm always trying to drive to people when they find these articles is try to find the source, like dig deep mm. because all those technical nuances that you don't realize are important. That's like how we do our job. So it's like, how do we find like the news highlight and then dig down to the source and dig down to the threat tell group, dig down to whatever. And that's kind of a fun exercise in itself because sometimes people don't post our sources and then trying to tie those things together. Mm-hmm. So it's always a really fun thing to do. Um, so now I want to take another switch on you since you're really big on privacy and you like privacy so much. And uh, it's kind of funny where I worked previously, people wanted to keep me away from the legal team because I always wanted to, I wanted to promote change. And they're like, if I can get the legal team on board with what I want to do, then they can't say no anymore. So it was like they always put this huge gap in the way. Um, and some of the conversations we used to ha- always have is as security professionals and what's the expectation of privacy when you work at a company and you're using their resources as far as how far can we investigate in, um, you know, when we put all appropriate disclaimers and everything like that. Is there an
1: expectation there? I don't, I don't. I didn't think there was an expectation of privacy anywhere anymore. But
0: well, like, uh, GDPR handles that differently. Right? That that's kind of off the table because I kind of yeah, know their answer. But like you're in the US, is there an expectation as far as what they should expect or what we shouldn't do as security professionals?
1: It's a loaded question I know because it, it depends I on industry, <laughs> um, but. I don't like the it depends answer. So I'll try to, we just haven't, the U.S. has a totally different mindset to privacy Mm -hmm. as any other place in the world, right? And we don't have an expectation of privacy. In fact, before 2007 or eight, whenever the California law was, there was actually incentive to hide any leak of data or information. So, but, Mm -hmm. but I think what the bigger thing is, is we finally turned the corner from it, not just being about the leak of data, or the exfiltration or I mean that's what people thought about the word breach for so long is because you on the security side see a breach like a security breach like I am busting in I am in unauthorized access and I always say please just use unauthorized access because right. privacy people we think breach being a data leak a data alert. exposure something is gone exfiltration and that's just because it's you know how it's defined in different statutes so Everyone has a different definition, just like of breach, of incident, of event. Like, you just got to go to the source of the definition. Um, But I would say we finally turned the corner, not just being about the leak, but now it's also about, like, well, where do you keep the data finally? And what do you do with the data? And the reason that's becoming more of a issue in the U.S. is, again, because of California. They started with the CCPA. Now there's a dozen other... Laws either in effect right now or about to be in effect. This was a big year for regulations and privacy state by state. Um, But you have different, again, state by state patchwork. But the good news is that there are some of the states with more population. So like there's a lot of residents in California where most businesses have to account. That is going to require you to be able to say where your data is. Just all it's asking for is like, do you know where your stuff is? Right it's not that, it is unreasonable for big, I know, I know, know.
0: know yeah,
1: (laughs) it is, it is not that unreasonable, not that it's not hard, it's not unreasonable to know, like, where you keep information, Mm -hmm. confidential, sensitive, or just otherwise, like, any any information that you're either contractually required to, or on humans, people, Um, I think where we're behind, is there's still, like, all this other information that you and I as security people would say is valuable Mm -hmm. but no one's guarding it or caring about it and things like behavioral analytics that aren't tied to a person anonymized but still like secret sauce. Oh yeah, the metadata. So that data, that freaks me out a little bit because that's like probably what nation state threat actors are gathering Mm -hmm. and I have no idea when we're going to come across a corner on just caring about all data and not just what the law says to care about. Because right now it's kind of like the seatbelt thing, like seatbelts becoming, you know, we're we're in the stage of the seatbelts getting accepted. We know we have to put it on, but we're only doing it for sensitive and data right. and confidential data okay. and people data. The company data is still just kind of wild west.
0: I agree. So I know we're kind of coming up on time, but I did want to ask you one question and it was something else I heard you talk about. When you were explaining to um, someone on a podcast about like how did you become so technical, and you threw the answer out, which I cracked up because I give the same answer.
1: Google. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I was like, yeah, that's what I say. I say first when they ask me like, what's your favorite security tool, I'm always like, well, there's Google and there's Excel. Like those are the two things you use most, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but now that ChatGPT's out. So, which I, I use and validate its application for what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was curious, have you used it much? Have you validated it in your space as far as how helpful it can be or how inaccurate it is or, you know, I those types of things?
1: I use ChatGPT every day. Uh, I have it on my app, on my phone, my personal phone, also on my computer. Um, I use MidJourney a couple times a week. So I'm very active in these tools, but I think that I have the Benefit of knowing the privacy impact of like, hey, yeah, I know they're going to have behavioral analytics on me. And you know, really, opt out of it?
0: You know, there's an opt out way?
1: I have the four. I haven't done that yet. Okay. No. Yes. I'm just being honest. Um, <laughs> I probably should. But I have the four. I think isn't opting out on the corporate account?
0: It, well, it's, it's going to be a paid for account. I
1: have a paid for. Okay, and I'll go yeah. do that. I'll go change that. You can. You, can, you got privacy. You privacy shamed me. <laughs> um I've used that term before, patch shaming. You know, when someone's on Zoom call and they like see that you need to update and (laughs) and you're like, don't patch shame me. I have the benefit of being a privacy attorney so I know what goes in. Like, right, I know the importance of inputs and the importance of outputs and the verification of outputs. I'm not going to be like the attorney that quoted the wrong case because all you had to do, all that attorney that got popped for quoting the wrong case was verify in Westlaw or Nexus. Another platform that all attorneys have access to almost in any firm especially the firm that that person was at instead he asked ChatGPT, is this a real case and they verified it for him of course and affirmed that he wasn't dumbass yeah. so i i feel like the only thing ChatGPT is gaining from me is that i ask really weird questions mm-hmm. and i'm brainstorming all sorts of random things because i'm putting into it a lot of questions i do like the fact that it cleans up the speech a lot so yeah. I know it gives me too much words, but I think some of my problem has always been getting to that point of polish. Yes. You know, like I just write notes in really short forms, like even like notes of the session today. I was like, oh my gosh, I could just take the notes from the session I listened to. I could ask it to put it in the format that I like to read notes, bullet point format, and synthesize and take out all the, you know, garbage. And that's what I really like it for. Brainstorming, synthesizing, and not putting, definitely not putting company information or personal information in. I will say I'm disappointed. One of the first questions I asked, I remember ChatGPT playing with it on Easter, and I said, please rank the, and I don't know how I came up with this prompt, but I was like, please rank the five cheapest non-candy options to put in Easter eggs for my kids and give me links to where to go for those. And it didn't have any of the new data, so the response was like the Uh, template, new data, pricing information i was like well you're losing out on the moms here because this is like what moms want it for we want a price comparison generative technology so if you want to build that with me let me know
0: yeah no i've actually used it for recipes yeah i have ingredients and then for this oh. podcast specifically i'll even um we do a theme drink a cyber drink for a cocktail on our monthly one this
1: but time. do you have good names because i did a whole like reddit thread on drink names like cyber drink names
0: um if you have suggestions and you have that available and you can point me in the right direction, we'll definitely borrow some.
1: Oh, um, they are so good. I so don't remember do. any off the top of my head okay. right now, but they are, I'll just, the teaser there. I have some hilarious Perfect. cyber nerd <laughs> drink names.
0: So yeah, so that we use it creatively for all sorts of things beyond just professionally. It's a lot of fun. Um, but we're at time. I really appreciate your time. This has been an excellent conversation. Um, and for everyone listening, you know, this is, Uh, Violet Sullivan, a special guest for us on the Out of the Woods Star Hunting Podcast. And happy hunting, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media.
1: We'll see you next time.